out, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're in the final stretch of our 1 Peter series. In the last two chapters, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter chapter 4. And I've continued to see, as I've been fed by Pastor Blair in this series and others, um, God's providence to our church in having us in this book in 2023 in our church. And I've continued to see it in my preparation this week. God has purposes for us that are unique. God speaks into every, God's word speaks into every generation, but I have been so grateful how he has spoken so specifically to us at such a time that we're living in our world right now. And today is no different. I, I hope you'll see the relevance of what Peter is saying for us today. And the reason I say that is because it's not a secret that today in our culture and in our world, that people's understanding of morality, our, our understanding of what is right and what is wrong has changed dramatically in a very fast period of time. Even in, even in the last 50, 60 years, it's changed dramatically. There's, there were certain, certain lifestyles, certain activities, certain words even, that at one point in our culture, uh, they were seen as shameful and wrong, and there was kind of a cultural consensus about those things. And today, what we've seen in a very short amount of time is the culture begin to tolerate and accept certain things. But where we're at today is past that. We have our culture today so often demanding that we as Christians celebrate different lifestyles, activities, the prayer breakfast that was going on a couple weeks ago in South Carolina, I was blown away that at a prayer breakfast, y'all saw this in the news, that, that there could be a kind of bragging about sexual immorality. That that could happen today uh, is pretty remarkable. And it should help us to see we are not living in, in a world that is the same, even 60 years ago. And we know that as Christians, what we're called to do is still the same, though. We know that Jesus is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that um, we're called right now as Christians to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude chapter 3. What Pastor Justin said last week, we know that we are to be ready to share with other people the hope that is within us about the, the gospel and about Jesus being able to save sinners. So all of that we know, I hope you know, is unchanged for Christians, but what we must prepare ourselves for today as Christians, what has changed for Christians in our country is the amount of opposition that we may face for our beliefs, the amount of persecution we may encounter because of Christ, the names that we might be called for following Jesus and his ways, we might be accused of things that Christians maybe wouldn't have been accused of 50 or 60 years ago. 
all of that is becoming more intense as the temperature just seems to raise and raise and raise in our culture for Christians. And will we just kind of cave in and go with the flow and say, you know, I guess times are changing. Maybe we should reframe what we believe about God and his word. Well, what we want to submit to you today, what I want to submit to you today is Christians can never do that. And what Peter's going to say to us in our passage is that we are called to remain faithful in that kind of opposition. There is so many similarities as I studied this passage in this Greco-Roman culture that Peter's writing to with our culture today. So many similarities. And Marla just read our passage a moment ago. We'll read it again, that section, in just a moment. But there's so many similarities that I hope we see God has something for us today in this passage. I want to give us the main idea and then we'll unpack it together. The main idea I want us to see today is that God's people must arm themselves with the mind of Christ that enables them to live for the will of God while suffering, confident that God will have the final word on judgment day. So my points will just unfold to unpack that. I really believe that's what Peter wants to get across to us. So let's start together in verses 1 and 2, that first part of that main idea for us to see today. Arm yourself with Christ's mind. Arm yourself with Christ's mind. Let's read these verses together. Look with me. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. If you were with us last week, you'll be able to tell pretty quickly Y'all know this, but there's no chapters, verse breaks in the original manuscripts, right? Those were added later. So Peter is continuing his thoughts that he started last week, especially in chapter 3, verse 18. Look at really quick, verse 318. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So so see, he's kind of started talking about this up above. Then in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered. So you see, he's building upon that. He's He's showing us how this should allow us to think and live now. Christ's life in ministry was one of suffering leading to victory. That's what we saw last week in chapter 3, 18 through 22. Christ's life was one of suffering and then glory, then victory. It was a pattern that he set, an example that was set for us to follow. His life was a life that walked through the crucible of the cross in order to wear the crown in eternity, right? And that is instructive for us. None of us should think, well, maybe I can not suffer at all. It's instructive for us because many teachings are out there that would say the exact opposite to that. There are various kinds. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, other forms that would say, no, the 
suffering is just going to get less and less. We shouldn't expect to suffer. The Bible is against that understanding. I, when I first read chapter 4, verse 1, I expected Peter to say something different, okay? I thought Peter was about to say, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of living. That's what I expected Peter to say. Look at Christ. He's suffering in the flesh. You should live that way. That's not what he says, though. And I want us to see this. This is really important for our first point today. I think that's the effect that Peter wants, but he doesn't, he takes us there another way. The New Testament is always concerned. Hear this. We've been preaching this over and over, and we've seen it in Peter over and over. The New Testament is always interested in the motivations, the heart posture that drive our behavior. Peter wants us to, is concerned about what's going on on the inside of us that enables a different way of living. So he speaks the way he speaks here deliberately. If we desire to live like Christ, and I hope I wouldn't be the only one to raise my hand, I want to live like Christ. I want to share in his sufferings. That should sound like Paul in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know him. I want to share in his sufferings. If we desire that, what is Peter saying that helps us to live that way? We first must arm ourselves with his way of thinking. Other translations say things like the same resolve. You should arm yourself with the same resolve. You should have the same attitude that Christ had. You should have the same understanding that he had. So this is a call for us to, here's a critical word, actively, actively take up the mind of Christ. Actively take up the mind of Christ. And in this immediate context, and most directly, I think we can see that this means, at the very least, we need to arm ourselves with the intention to suffer. That's what, that's what he means most immediately, but it means more than that. It means more than that. And this is where I think Scripture can help us interpret Scripture here as we think about what was the mind of Christ that allowed him to walk towards the cross and not bend and not cave and to live for the will of his Father? What was on Christ's mind well, even in the book of 1 Peter, I want us to just flip over one page to chapter 3 quickly. I'm sorry, to chapter 2. No, chapter 3 in a second. Chapter 2, verse 21. This you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's what he did continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And we can now return, it says, to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now look at chapter 3, verse 18. We mentioned this a moment ago. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why did he do that? 
that he might bring us to God. Drop down to verse 22. He's now gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. And I want to add one more. It's not in 1 Peter, but you'll see the parallel, I think. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it tells us what was on the mind of Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says that we're called to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And we're called to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Then it says, looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was on Christ's mind as he went to the cross? Well, he wanted to live for the will of his Father, but he had on his mind the joy that was set before him. He had on his mind the result of what would come through the suffering. He had on his mind more than just, I've got to suffer, it's here in front of me. He was thinking about the long haul of what his death would accomplish. It would bring many sons to glory. He would be ascended to the right hand of his father. And this is important for us as we see Peter work through his argument in this passage. So Christ's mind, this is where it gets practical to us, Christ's mind as he was walking towards the cross, as he was walking into suffering, was set on the will of his father. And this was the mindset that allowed Christ to endure the worst suffering that this world has ever seen. And it's no wonder, when we're talking about suffering for our faith, I think most of us know that doesn't happen by accident. There's an intensity to Peter's language here when he says, arm yourself. Arm yourself. This is the third time that Peter has come to military language. Do you hear his intensity when he says that? Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. The life of a Christian, Peter's trying to get across, is like we are in a war. Again, I say this is the third time he's come to this kind of language. If we remember in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, prepare your minds for action. Chapter 1, verse 13. In chapter 2, the passions of our flesh are at war with, the, with our soul, wage war against our soul. This is a warring this is a taking up, arming ourselves with something to war against the devil and to war against the passions of our flesh. Verse 1 says, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That doesn't mean that we can become sinlessly perfect. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is a life that is willing to suffer for the cause of Christ is a life that is evidencing or demonstrating their new identity, which the Bible teaches us in Romans 6 is done with sin. We've died to sin. And he's saying the life that's willing to suffer for the cause of Christ demonstrates that reality. And I just want to say a couple things pastorally here. I, I thought it's a question I want to ask us. I almost didn't want to ask this and, or say these things, but I, I love you guys. I love you guys. And my question is, do we regularly think about our Christian life? 
do we regularly think about our Christian life, our walk with Jesus, in terms of being in a war? Is that how you talk about your Christian walk with some regularity? I want to say this with care. I want you to know I love you. But if, if, if you don't ever talk about your Christian faith like that, you may be spiritually immature. And I'm saying that because Peter, throughout this book, and we could go to so many letters in the New Testament, want to speak with an intensity that says, our life as a Christian now is not at all like, woo, I got my ticket stamped to heaven, and I am just good to go. I'm going to set it on cruise control, and everything's great. And I just, I talk with so many people like that. And I think they look at me sometimes like I'm crazy and like, man, you're kind of intense asking questions that you might be asking me. But guys, we are in a war. We're in a war. We're to arm ourselves with this way of thinking because it doesn't come naturally. This mind that Peter's telling us to put on does not come naturally to you and me. Pastor Blair preached in 1 Peter, chapter eight, 1 Peter 1, chapter 18, that we're called to actually be holy in our conduct now. And we've been ransomed, we learned there, from our feudal ways, inherited from our forefathers, by the precious blood of Jesus. And Blair said to us that week, Christ not only purchased our justification, but he purchased our sanctification. So that should encourage us to keep living in such a way that glorifies the Lord. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify himself for a people who are zealous for good works. Not just kind of passive about, just kind of floating through life. And I say this because I love you, and I don't want any of us to be deceived. How, though, how should we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ? And if you are in small groups this week, I want to encourage you to ask yourselves that question. How do we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ? And I'll give us a few things here, but that's a, worth, a worthy question to consider. We who are struggling with sin still, we must fight to fill our minds with our God's perfect will. That's why Christ was always getting away to be alone with the Father. His mind was full of his Father's will. And it enabled him, we'll see in a moment, to live for his Father's will. And today we know God's perfect will because we have his perfect word. We don't just say things like that. We really believe them and we believe they affect our lives. That God hasn't hidden from you what his will is for your life. He hasn't hidden from us what it means to have the mind of Christ. I prayed this a moment ago, but Jesus understood that man cannot live by bread alone, and he modeled that with every part of his life, his life proving that. When we look to other te uh, texts in the New Testament about what it means to have the mind of Christ, I would argue that that just means having a spiritual mindedness. When we look at the text about what it means to be sanctified, they always point to being conformed into the image of Jesus, Romans 8 says. Ephesians 4 says, 
the church is to build up the saints to think more like Jesus, to be more like him, to mature manhood, it says. To have the mind of Christ is to be spiritually minded in the, in the, in the highest possible way. Romans 12, 2 would help us see that to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ means to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 1 Peter 2, 2 it would mean that we should long, church family, if you want to have the mind of Christ, you want to put it on, that we would long for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God so that by it, that passage says, we would grow up into salvation. It means we should lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and that we should cultivate the joy of heaven that is before us like Christ did, like we saw earlier in Hebrews 12. And Peter is telling us this for a purpose, right? He's telling us this for a purpose. And we're going to see this in verses uh, 2 through 4. Our second point, we're to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, not for no reason. We have to put his mind on in order to live our lives for God's will. That's our second point. Look at verses 2 through 4 with me. So as to live... Here's the purpose. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The order of these points is important. I hope you know that. Peter says that living out God's will comes after we arm ourselves with Christ's mind. I'll say that again. Peter says that living out God's will comes after we arm ourselves with Christ's mind. We said already Christ's mind was perfectly set on his father's will. Because of that, he was able to live out God's will. So many people, this is important. We can talk with so many people and they'll say, I want to live for God's will. I want to do God's will in my life. I want to do God's will in my life. And then when you ask them about habits that they have spiritually, about taking up the mind of Christ, it, it can be almost non-existent. So you see how relevant this is for us. If we desire to live for God's will and not cave in to the pressure that our world might put on us at any given point, my question is, have you put on Christ's mind? Because we do want to live for God's will. He sets up a contrast. The ESV doesn't show this. It says, verse 2, we want to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then verse 3 literally says, for the time that is past is sufficient for doing the will of the Gentiles. So you see he's contrasting the will of God versus the will of the Gentiles, those who don't know God. The time that is past, in other words, it's a part of your history, it's in the past, when you didn't know the Lord, that's enough time that you had to live in all the ways you wanted. But now that you've come to know Jesus Christ, and you have his mind, 
we can live for God's will and not the will of the Gentiles. So here's the purpose that he's giving. Living for God's will, he's showing us the fruit in these verses of putting on the mind of Christ that we could be equipped to live for God's will and not for the will of those around us who do not know the Lord. And that's why we prayed a moment ago. Pastor Justin led us in that prayer. We really do desire that all of the classes in this church, all of the equipping, all of the ABFs would, would help us do this, would equip us with a mind and a heart and renovate the inside of us and renew our minds so that we would live for God's will, not just on Sunday, but that every day of our lives we might live for God and his glory. That's what God intends for us. And I just want to take a moment to speak to students. Students, I'm thinking especially of middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students. The Lord just, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I just thought, oh my goodness, every year you go and start a new school year, many of you are going to walk and meet new friends, many of you are going to step into new classrooms, and at the start of every new semester, I promise you, I want you to hear me, I promise you, there will be new temptations that you will walk into. There's going to be new challenges that you will experience. And there are going to be many places where you are faced with a choice. A choice to either live for the desires of your flesh, to go with the flow, or to live for God's glory and to live for God's will. I promise you that choice is going to come for you in, in a very short amount of time this fall. And how will you equip yourself for that moment? It will come. It will come. Will you cave in those moments and just simply fit in? Or will you live for God's glory? And I want you to know that there is empowerment that you have in the gospel to really live for God's glory. He has not left you alone. And if I can just exhort you, and if I can just encourage you for a moment, to, for you, every student in here, to make it a commitment, a commitment that you have set aside time this fall, you've put it in your calendar where you will have your soul nourished and where you will have your mind set upon Jesus Christ. And you would make a commitment to not do that alone. We are here to serve you in that very purpose, to not just throw you out into the world and not equip you for it. We are here to help you for, with, with that. I want to remind you, sometimes my generation struggles with realizing that the church was not man's idea, but it was God's idea for your good, for your growth, for your protection. And if you are a member here already as a student, I want to encourage you to be plugged in this fall. Come. Satan loves to attack sheep who are isolated from the flock. He loves to go after them because they are the most vulnerable. And what's so sad is often they don't know they're the most vulnerable. They're blind to it. And those are our most vulnerable places of being deceived. And we're just going with the flow. 
make it a settled commitment, students. You can live for God's glory. I want you to know we're praying for you this fall. We want to come alongside you. If you haven't picked a church home this fall, there's many gospel preaching churches in the area. We'd love to come alongside you and disciple you and help you live faithfully this fall. But if it's not us, that's okay. Find another church that is going to pour into you and help you put on the mind of Christ. Because if you do not build that into your life, you will be, a, you will be what Ephesians 4 talks about, the person who's just tossed to and fro constantly by every wind of doctrine and every opinion that's out there. But there's more for you in Jesus Christ, and we want to help you and walk alongside you in that. And of course, all of us know, even if I just spoke to the students, this text is not just for students, it's for all of us. In our jobs, we're called to live for God's will. We're called to live for God's will in all things. I've heard so many of you talk about how your job has gotten, some of you have lost jobs, we've heard. Some of you have, have, have had pressure from the job that you've had to talk about things and, and celebrate things that are against your convictions. This is going on, I know, with some of you in your jobs right now. And I want to encourage you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself, to seek to live as faithfully as you know how, but we can never fold and join the culture in celebrating sin. Christians can never do that. And that's why it says in verse four, that's what it means when it says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter expects that Christians in a culture that is highly secularized, they will be called names, and they will be accused of many things. And he's trying to build into us a heart that can be ready and prepared to live faithfully, even in those moments. But I want you to know that where he's going to take us is to encourage us. And he's basically going to say that even if the culture, I want you to know this, especially I'm talking to students again, what can be so real to this, to even with my kids, words are like, Sticks and stones will break my bones. Words can never hurt me. That's a lie. Uh, words really hurt us. And there are times when people say things about us that just are so painful. And it's so tempting to go, I just want to avoid, I want to avoid anybody saying anything bad about me. And I'm going to live for just the fear of man for just a moment. And I just, I just, I empathize with you. But I want to encourage you that this passage is going to tell us that even though our culture might look at our lives as Christians and evaluate them and say, that's pathetic. I can't believe you would believe that. You believe that? Wow. Just ask some of the students that came back from Boston, having some of the conversations with them about the people they were talking with there about spiritual things. They were called some of the most outrageous things by the people they were just trying to have a conversation about the gospel with. Even though the culture may evaluate us and find us wanting, God will have the final word over our lives. Their word is not the final word, and that's what five and six are trying to say. Look at those verses. But they will give an account to him who is ready 
to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Quickly, verse 6. What does that mean? The most natural reading in vast majority of scholars that I read this week say that it has nothing to do with 319. We're tempted to think, does he, is he saying something that's similar to 319 that Justin preached last week? Most scholars say there's no connection between those verses. That he's saying something different. The language is thoroughly different in the Greek. And the most natural reading of this makes the, the most sense. He's not teaching that there's some past after you die, another opportunity to believe. The, the common claim at this time in the non-believing world, this Greco-Roman culture, was that Christians die just like everybody else. So why was the gospel good for anything? So you should just live it up right now. They saw the judgment of death as this ultimate thing. Life certainly didn't go on after that. So why would I want to believe your gospel? And we need to remember these verses are written to console believers and to encourage them. And what Peter is saying is that the gospel was preached to those who have now died. Not for no reason. That gospel was not in vain for them. That even though they're judged in the flesh right now, the way you might judge them, the, temp the temporary judgment that they've died and passed away, what is ultimately going to be said about them because of the gospel that they believed is that their lives would be evaluated and live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel is not worthless to those who have died now, who have passed away. They didn't have the whole picture and it was a common belief at this time that his life didn't go on anywhere after you died. The gospel, we've, we know so many people who we've buried here at the church, the gospel is absolutely relevant to them. First Thessalonians 4 would tell us that they will rise first in the resurrection even. Christ will come back and he will judge the living and the dead and he's saying that this changes everything this is to be a motivation first, a motivation and an encouragement to the Christians who are living there, who are having a, just the most slanderous things said about them, about loved ones who have died and about their own lives now. This is a motivation and encouragement for them to trust in their God and for us today in a difficult world that we're living in, to trust in our God who will have the final word. We really believe that Christ will come and he will have the final word in our lives. And that's what we're called to do now. And if you're here and you have been hurt by people, if you have been wronged by people, if you have been spoken against unfairly and unjustly, don't avenge yourself. The Bible, in fact, tells you explicitly to not avenge yourself to leave it to the Lord who will repay, he will set all things straight, and he will judge justly. Do you believe that? Is your hope on that? I want you to know today that that day is coming sooner than we all might want to think. Christ will set all things straight. He will evaluate our lives, and for those who have trusted in him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And for those 
who have not trusted in Christ for salvation, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And all those who don't know him will be separated from him forever in a place called hell. And all those who know him will come and enter into his paradise with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Joy and pleasures that we've not even known here, ever. And our hope, church family, is to be on that day when we will live with him forever. And these are our responses quickly. They're really just straightforward. But I, even though Peter wrote these verses initially for believers, I want to be sensitive to an unbeliever that's in this room and say, you will give an account if you're here and you don't know Jesus Jesus will come back as the judge of the living and the dead, and your life will be evaluated. And the only way that you will be found innocent is not by looking at your life and seeing if you've done enough good things. That is not the difference between Christians and non-Christians. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians on Judgment Day, when the judge asks them, why should I let you in? They, they will say, because... Jesus' blood forgave me of my sin. I don't deserve to come in, Lord. But I believed in Jesus and what he said. Because of that, I can be cleansed, is what he told me. As Alistair Begg said in that famous sermon, because the man on the middle cross told me I could come. That's the reason that Christians will be there. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, Christ can cover your sins today so that you can stand before the judge when he comes forgiven, not because of your life and all of the accolades and, that you've done, but because of the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. For believers, quickly, arm yourself with the mind of Christ. How do you do that? How do you do that? I never, we'll be saying this, Sometimes it's not the profound truths that change us the most, it's the persistent ones. I need to be reminded by you all constantly to put on the mind of Christ. Are you doing that? What does that look like for you? How are you putting on the mind of Christ this week? We want to help you do that. Do you have a plan this fall to put on his mind? Because you won't live for his will this fall if you don't have a plan to put on his mind. Three, stand for God's will. Stand for God's will. If you're here and, you're, and you are in feeling tempted with something going on in your world or with a friendship or in your job to cave to pressure, maybe this sermon God would use to remind you to stand for God's will, even when it's unpopular. When Paul says in Philippians 3 that I might know the Lord and share in his sufferings, he's talking about an intimacy that can be experienced with Jesus only when we join him in his suffering sometimes. I promise there will be a sweet intimacy that you can share with Christ when you join him and follow him in standing for God's will. And lastly, we were to, we were to set our hearts on the joy. Set your heart on the joy of Christ's second coming. He's coming again. He will set all things straight. Those who have died and passed away will rise because Christ has risen from the dead as the first fruits, we sing about this all the time, we will be risen from the dead. Christ's resurrection was the guarantee of our resurrection. And as we come to this table right now, guys, I just, this is our first response today. This is, 
this is perfect to come and make this our first response today because this ordinance was given to us by Christ to empower us, to give us empowering grace, to strengthen us, to, to, to fuel our resolve, to live out the very exhortations that we've heard from God's word today. So if you would, join me in prayer as we come to this table. Lord, help us, help us to learn to put on the mind of Christ that teaches us that the way down is the way up and that to be low is to actually be high and that to seemingly have nothing is to possess everything in your kingdom. Lord, teach us, teach us because we need to have this mindset that is often not ours in our flesh at all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown. So Lord, would you please strengthen us? Would you please help us to live faithfully for your will this fall, that we would be a church that is known not just as a Sunday morning only church, so to speak, but a church that brings the light of the gospel to our city into classrooms, into our work. So please, would you strengthen us for this very thing? In Jesus' name, amen.